when you give to, uh, if you're offering, a portion does uh, go to um, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, but you can also give directly to it if you like to as well. And so that's coming up pretty soon. And so Easter, five weeks away, we are excited about Easter. Uh, we are doing the registration process that Colby mentioned, and we're doing that because we do have a number that is considered full for our sanctuary with social distancing. But if we get full, we will add a service at 945, and so you will not miss out on that. We also have overflow seating as well. But we just wanted an idea of where you plan on being. Easter Sunday morning is not typically a, a morning where people wake up and say, you know, I want to go to church today. Uh, most people have planned to be somewhere on Easter, and so we feel like we can do that. There's been a lot of churches that have registration every week. We have not had to do that, thankfully. And uh, amen. And hopefully this will be the only time we get to do it. And hopefully within a month from now, prayerfully, maybe we won't, it won't even be necessary, but we're planning like it will be. And so that opens up tomorrow. You can do that by going online and registering, or you can call the office and let us know which service you plan to be and whoever's going to be there. So we can have a great Easter. Aren't you excited about Easter? Last year we couldn't even come in here last year, and so we're excited about it. Amen? Come on. All right, there we go. Okay. Well, I have a five-month-old puppy, and we've been working on training our puppy. And uh, now it was kind of my, my uh, daughter's idea to get a puppy. It wasn't my idea. We have four children. I have a two-year-old puppy, a human. And, uh, and so I figured we already had our hands kind of tied with that. But we got one. And uh, my wife also wanted to train this puppy. And so they've been working on training the puppy. And they asked me if I wanted to train the puppy. And I said, uh, I don't have time to train a puppy. I have four children. But y'all can, so you go ahead. And, of course, the puppy wants to be with me all the time and everywhere. You know how that works kind of thing. Uh, but they've been doing a pretty good job of training her. And she's a natural retriever. We'll throw a tennis ball all day, and she'll bring it back to me. Well, even when she was real little, she does good with that, but they're working on training with her, and they give her treats when she does well and that kind of thing, and, you know, she doesn't do well a lot of times, not that I don't think she knows what to do, but because she chooses not to, uh, but we reward her when she does good, well, when she does good, and, and we give her a lot of grace, and, you know, it's similar to having children, you know, you ask children to do something and they obey, and you give them, you give them something when they obey, and then there's maybe a consequence when they don't, but also you give your kids and grandchildren especially a lot of grace, amen, and so we see that from time to time. And, and we do that, I believe, uh, is because Christianity is all about grace. And as children of God, when we do good, there is reward when we do well. When we obey him, God rewards us. But God also gives us his love, and he gives us grace when we fail him. That is what grace is. And grace is greater than just being good. It's good to be good, but grace is greater than being good, which is what we're talking about today. Galatians chapter 4 is where we are. Paul is still talking to the Galatians as we work through this passage of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, if I weren't going through Galatians, this would not be one of the first passages I would pick just to choose to preach because there's a lot of detail from the Old Testament in here. But, but God has given us his word for a reason. And this is in God's word for a reason. And it's underscoring Paul's greater argument as to why he wants the Galatians not to fall back under the yoke of slavery, of moralism and legalism, and remember what it means to follow Jesus. So that is in verse 21 where we are today, and he says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, as she is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today, it can be confusing a little bit of what Paul is trying to get to. So as we look at this passage, teach us something today about how this points to us living in grace as opposed to just living a good life, trying to earn your salvation, trying to earn your blessing. Lord, when we can't do that. Let us live as free people who live and act and do because of your love for us and for our love for you and others. And let us not feel the burden, the yoke of being in our sins. That's spiritual slavery, Lord, that that brings us down. Let us understand how we are to live in that tension of wanting to do good, but also wanting to live in grace. Father, I pray, Lord, that my words are yours, that you fill me with your spirit today, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In spiritual terms, doing good, just doing good, is legalism or moralism. And the, and the belief that God rewards us solely for our performance it's legalism, moralism. But as we follow Christ, we find that we're awarded both when we do good and we're given grace many times, oftentimes when we don't. And all religions operate on some system of moralism, some system of legalism, but Christianity is different than all other religions in the world. So I want to give you today three elements that decipher walking with Christ, a Christian faith, Christianity, that d d distinguish this from just pure, cold legalism. And that is number one. Legalism is slavery. It is a spiritual slavery. Verse 21, Paul says this. Now tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul's saying that you want to live under the, the qualifications of the law that, that God gave Moses and all these other extra commandments. He says, do you even know the Old Testament? Do you even know what the law says? It's kind of like this. People say sometimes that they're Christians or they are believers. And sometimes you wonder if they've ever read the Bible. Sometimes that happens. Or, or you hear people talking about things or they'll say, well, God's word says this. And they might throw a scripture out there. And you realize it's not even in the Bible. Have you ever seen that before? It's not actually a part of the Bible. It's just some type of saying. Well, these Galatians were similar in that they were saying that, that yes, they knew about Jesus, that God had rescued them from paganism. They were now in Christ. But they went even further and they tried to put all these burdens down on themselves, saying that you had to be like a Jew in order to be saved. And he says, do you even know what that Old Testament says? That's what he's saying to them. He then explains to them a, a famous Old Testament story. Verse 22, he says this. For it's written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman, 
one by a free woman. Now, Abraham, by whom Paul has been trying to explain to them that saving faith comes from the original promise that God made to Abraham, that Abraham actually had two sons. And if you know your Old Testament, you might know this. Now, God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would have a son, and through that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, first through the nation of Israel, and then through Jesus who came from that family group. Genesis 12 shows us this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the promise. Abraham was out worshiping the stars, doing his own thing, as lost as the day is long, and God interrupts his life and says, Abraham, come and go, and I will make your name great for my name, for my sake. And part of this was that he would have an offspring, but it's kind of hard to be a, a big family, a big nation, if you don't have any children. Amen? It's a little difficult to do that. There wasn't the, the type of things we have now where, where you can do certain things. I mean, if you wanted a natural child, uh, there was one way to do it, and they didn't have it. And they were getting older, and they were getting older, and they were getting in their 60s, and they were getting in their 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and they had no children. And if you were 90, and you were the wife, you were Sarah, and you were 99, and you were Abraham, you might think that God had broken his promise. Amen. You probably would have thought that. Well, they thought that as they were getting older and getting older. And so they sought to do something man's way, not God's way. And we see this in Genesis 16. Now Sarai, who became Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had a female servant, Egyptian servant, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now... The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Maybe, maybe she's saying this doesn't come from me. Maybe there's a, another route, she's thinking. She starts thinking about things humanly speaking. That's what happens to us sometimes. She says, go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, which was a big mistake on his part. Verse 3, and after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, later on, God's promise did come through, and Sarai did conceive and bear a son. And just to show you that God is a God that keeps promise, he also blessed Hagar's son and made him into a great nation as well. It wasn't the, the nation that God wanted, that, he, that was his people, but it was a great nation. And Paul isn't sure if the Galatians understand all this part of Jewish history since they were, they were pagans before coming to Christ. So he's explaining it to them, and he's then applying it to their situation. So it gets a little confusing as he applies it, but we have to remember that Paul, before he was saved, was an expert Pharisee, an expert teacher of the law that had a great mind of the Bible. You know, the Pharisees have the whole Old Testament memorized. Can you imagine? Sometimes I have a hard time remembering my babies, my children's birthdays when I go to Walgreens and pick up prescriptions. So I have four of them. I can't figure out which is which. She had, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. He understood the Bible. He understood the application. So he's teaching them this. And he says in verse 23, 
But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. What he's saying is that Hagar's son was born because people got together and decided to make that happen. But Isaac was born because God decided to make that happen. So Paul then makes a connection and he calls it an allegory. He says that these, verse 24, these women are two covenants. Covenant is a relationship with God. This is what he's referring to. There's a covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses. And the Judaizers are trying to say that the covenant of Moses was more important than the covenant of Abraham. And he's like saying, no, that's not. So he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now this is confusing because he's kind of jumping categories. But he's saying that Hagar's son, Ishmael, the one that came through their own will, that came through the slave woman, that she represents the, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai explains that Hagar represents the Judaizers. Hagar represents being a slave to the law. She was a slave in life, she was, and she represents being a slave to the law. And she represents moralism and legalism and ceremonialism that does not offer salvation. So he says in verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the Judaizers, the Jewish people who, who are in slavery. The majority of the Jews in Jerusalem were not believing in Jesus, and they were stuck in this law-giving, no-grace religion. But he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above, the kingdom of God, heaven above, is free, and she is our mother we don't belong to this earthly kingdom. We belong to the heavenly kingdom. That's where we long to be. That's where we have an inheritance, the new Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, the belief that one is saved by works, that one is saved by actions, that we're saved by our performance or by what we do or by merit or by being good is the most commonly held belief today. Every religion on some level, whatever the goal of that religion is, it's got to have something to do with you performing well enough. And we bring that in to our Christian beliefs many times. It's even held in Christian circles. We have to do something. Why is that? Why is that the case? Why do we battle that? Why do people think that? Why, why is that the default belief? Well, I believe that the short answer is that our hearts want it to be that way on some level. But there are other reasons why I believe so. I want to give us several reasons here today. Number one, this is the case because we judge others based on merit. That's how we judge people. Have you, if you don't believe this, have you ever been to a drive-thru before and they got your order wrong? Has that ever happened to you before? You know? maybe I'm the only one maybe that happens to. You go to a drive-thru. You know, it's, it's, if you go to a drive-thru service and they get your order right, it's almost like a miracle sometimes, isn't it? I mean, we have a big order. And so when, whatever drive-thru we go, we have three and four bags. I always have to pull over and I'll pull over and check it because I don't want to have to drive back because, you know, my child didn't get their burger or something like that. Or, or Usually there's a mistake somewhere. I'm, again, and so, but we start judging. We start thinking, well, why can't they get the order right? There's one place in town where three, week, three weeks in a row, Three weeks in a row, I won't tell you where it is, they left out my sandwich. I mean, the first week it was just like a mistake, and I was like, oh, well, you know, I went up there and got it back. The second week, the same day, the same time, uh, I went and I got home. I didn't check it because I figured they wouldn't forget. They left out my sandwich again. And the third day, my wife went, week, my wife went to go pick it up, 
and they left out the sandwich again. And we got a little irritated, like, what in the world? And I thought about calling up there and being like, hey, listen, the Wallace family is coming by this same time, same day, every week, so maybe you put some little, you know, <laughs> something on your wall saying, when the Wallaces come here, but I didn't want to do that because I didn't have to tell them I was a pastor of the church across the street and all that. I didn't want to have to do all that, so I'm just joking, joking anyway. But anyhow, but we judge others on merit. We say, well, why can't they do that, right? Why, why can't they get that right? Or why does this person do this? Or why did they do that? We judge other people based on if they're good or if they aren't. And when they mess up, we just consider them bad. When they do well, we, we consider them good. So what happens is we assume God is going to judge people with the same standards that we judge people by. We just assume that. But this isn't the case. In fact, God's judgment is simultaneously much more severe than our judgment and much more gracious than our judgment. We earn far and deserve far worse than we get, and we get far better than we deserve. God is the, the only judge. We judge others based on what we think they should be doing, what they shouldn't. That's one reason why we, we bring this works-based religion idea to Christianity. Secondly, we often misunderstand the reason for doing good. We misunderstand the reason for doing good. People think they must do good things to earn God's grace, to earn God's salvation, when in fact we do good things because we've been saved. Our hearts have been changed. There are things that I find myself doing and that I want to do and that I feel the Lord calling me to do and, 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 and that I would have never done without Jesus in my heart, without Jesus changing me, that five, ten years ago I wouldn't have thought about, let alone do. And we do these things because the Holy Spirit is changing us, not because I'm trying to get God to love me, but because we want to, because we've been saved. And so as Christians, we do good things not to be saved, but because we are saved. We misunderstand that sometimes. Number three, we also have confusion about this because we often sometimes view God the Father similarly to our earthly father. Now, if you had a wonderful father who's caring and fair and disciplined you when you needed it, but gave you grace and loved you and, and you could count on and, and that was just a, a good, for the most part, a good father, that when you read about God being father, you have somewhat of an understanding of what the Bible's talking about. But if you had a father that wasn't these things, that was a poor father, or was not around, or didn't do anything, you have a hard time understanding what the Bible's saying about God being father. So many times how we view God's relationship with us it comes into play based on how, what we think a father-child relationship is like or has been like. Most father-child relationships are based on do this and there's a reward or do this and there's a consequence. And that is how God has instilled it to be. So we take this earthly relationship and we translate it into our heavenly father relationship. And we want to please God, but we don't have to please him for him to love us. I want to make sure you understand that. We don't have to please God for him to love us. So we... we, so we mistake that sometimes. And number four, finally, I just think that the majority of people want control over their path to the afterlife. We want control over it. No one can perform well enough to earn heaven. Did you know that? 
Nobody can perform well enough to earn heaven. I can't and you can't. And the beauty in that is that God doesn't expect us to perform well enough. If he did, he would have never sent Jesus. Or he would have said, I sent Jesus for everyone but you. You don't need him. You're perfect. (laughs) That's not what he said. The Bible says that Jesus came for all people, me and you included, because we all need it. He knows we're not going to live up to it. So he sent Jesus to come and to take our sin on the cross, to live the life we couldn't live, to do the performance we couldn't perform, and to die the death that we deserve that he did not. That's the gospel. That's why he sent Jesus. All these things just reinforce the spiritual slavery we put ourselves in when we ignore the grace of God. We're not meant to live in that type of slavery. Secondly, salvation is miraculous. If you know Jesus, if you're saved today, it is a miracle. We don't ever need to get over that fact. It is a miracle. Look at verse 27. For it is written, he's quoting Old Testament, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. They're saying that someone who could not have children, there's a miracle coming. Just as God miraculously gave a son to 90-year-old Sarah, and you know that if a 90-year-old woman gives birth, it is a miracle. Amen. We know that. That just like God gave a a son to a 90-year-old woman, each person who is saved by the grace of God is also miraculously born again. Your salvation is a miracle. The Bible says that we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sin. We were reborn with the Holy Spirit Reborn in God's grace. Never forget that salvation is a miracle. If you can't think about your own life being that way, think about someone you know that's been saved, that you knew before they were saved. I have several friends growing up and later on in life that turned to Jesus. And I still, I still have a hard time thinking that they really know Jesus. They do. Their lives has been changed. But I knew them before. And it's a miracle to me that they know Jesus. And it's a miracle to them that I know Jesus. Because it's a miracle if you know Christ. Now, many of us come to Christ as children, and it's still miraculous. Have you seen children before? (laughs) They're not perfect. They're little sinners. It's a miracle when they turn to Christ, too. It's a miracle when they turn to Jesus. Uh, We've had several situations in vacation Bible school, we've had children come to VBS, and we've had a child that has been the bad child. They didn't want to be there. Their mom made them come or somebody made them come. And on day three or four, when we present the gospel, they receive Jesus, and that child is different the next day. Salvation is a miracle. Never forget that. Look what John 3.3 says. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's no other way to be made right with God unless God works it in your life. It's a miracle. That's what he says. Salvation is miraculous. And he says in verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Just like Isaac's promise and birth 
were miraculous. Your salvation, your rebirth are miraculous. If you're walking around a, 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 a saved person today, if you know Jesus in your heart, you're, if you're walking around today, you can't say, I've never seen God do a miracle because you are a miracle. You knowing Jesus is a miracle. And finally, number three, Jesus is freedom. Jesus is freedom. Verse 29 says this, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What's he talking about? Well, in Genesis, there's an account where Ishmael, Hagar's son, was picking on Sarah's son, Isaac, kind of bullying him a little bit. Genesis 21 talks about it. It says this, verse 8. Talking about Isaac, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now, the word for laughing here is kind of a weird word. Paul is actually interpreting it as a sort of persecution, sort of picking on him, kind of laughing at him and picking on him, and a sort of bullying in a way. And he draws the conclusion that believers in Christ during this time of the Galatians are being persecuted and attacked by the unbelieving Jews, just as Ishmael is attacked, was attacked, attacked Isaac out of jealousy. And I would say the same thing is, is in our world today. If you are trying to live a life where you are following Jesus Christ by the grace of God and you know that you are saved by grace and nothing else, other competing thoughts, other com competing teachings, even in sects of Christianity, are picking and attacking and persecuting you. Wanting you to, to have doubt on your salvation, wanting you to have doubt that you don't have it all together. Oh, you may know Jesus, but do you go to this type of church? Do you have this certain gift? You might know Jesus, but do you believe this specific thing? They try to add something to the gospel. And Paul says that's no different than Ishmael attacking and persecuting Isaac for being who Isaac is. You are an Isaac, not an Ishmael. And the world is filled with Ishmaels attacking you and me for trying our best by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in step with the gospel. You're always going to have that. And that's what he's saying. He then brings up the rest of the passage, and it gets even stranger. Look at verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He's quoting Genesis 21.10 when it says this. She got upset that her son was being picked on, Sarah. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son. Now, this is a horrible situation in this scripture, in this context. She doesn't want her apart anywhere, and they do. They send her out into the desert, and the child almost dies, and God has pity on the child and says, I will make you also a great nation, which she does, and Ishmael becomes a great nation. But in this context, Paul takes it a little bit and turns it a little differently and says this. You need to cast out the Hagars and the Ishmaels in your life who are teaching you wrong. That's what he's saying. Cast out the false teaching that wants to put you in slavery. 
cast out those that said that you have to have Jewish moralism to be saved. Why? Verse 31, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Just as Hagar and Ishmael were slaves and servants and property of Abraham, to align yourself with a false moralism is putting yourself into a slavery relationship. It breaks my heart all the time. I see people in all realms of Christianity tweeting and quoting all kind of things that is putting them, keeping them in slavery spiritually. Not trusting in Jesus, not living a life of grace. He says, you are not a child of that slave woman. You are a child of the free woman. We have freedom in Jesus. There's a son of a 12-year-old farm. There's a story of a 12-year-old farm boy. He was out on the farm, and he was throwing rocks at geese. You ever done anything like that before? I might have when I was young. I don't know. And if he threw one a little too hard, he hit a goose in the head, and it fell over, died. Sad thing to do, learned the lesson the hard way. So the boy took that goose, picked that big old goose up, buried it, and said, well, we had 24, now we have 23. I'm sure the parents won't, won't see, they won't, they won't know we had a difference. He counted them all. He buried that goose, thought he'd gotten away with it, went back home, went into the kitchen. And his sister said, I saw what you did out there. <laughs> I saw you kill that goose. Now, if you wash the dishes for me for the next two weeks, I won't tell mom and dad. He said, sounds good to me. That's a deal. So every day he came into the kitchen and he washed those dishes day in and day out. She didn't say anything and he knew that he had to pay off his debt. And he did that every day and every day. And then one day she came in the kitchen and the dishes were still there and he was just laying on the couch. She said, brother, you haven't done the dishes. Get those dishes clean. He said, I'm not doing the dishes anymore. She says, really? He said, nope. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell mom and dad. He said, go ahead. I've already talked to them. They forgave me. I'm free. <laughs> you don't have to do the dishes anymore. You know why? Because you have a God that knows everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever done. And when the Bible says when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us. That is the gospel. We don't have to have some sister holding that over our head anymore. We're not a slave to that anymore. We can live free knowing that we have turned our eyes to Jesus. He has forgiven us positionally. We have forgiveness with him. And every day of our life when we sin, we can turn to him and ask God forgiveness. And he forgives us. And that relationship is restored every day. And we don't have to be a slave anymore. That is what Paul is saying in this passage. You don't have to be a slave anymore. You have a God that loves you and forgives you and wants you to live freely in his love. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you. We don't have to do things out of guilt. We don't have to do things to earn your love. We don't have to perform even though we want to, even though we have a desire in us to do something. Lord, help us take that desire to not perform for your love, but to perform because we love you and to perform because we love others.
so that we can be a blessing to others through doing good things and doing good works. Father, we thank you that Jesus was the performer, that he did what we couldn't do. Now, you knew that we would need that. And that while doing good is great, doing and living in grace is best and it's better. And we thank you how you forgive us, Lord, even when we, we continue to sin. Not that we can sin, not that we want to sin, but we do. And we thank you that you forgive us even so. Lord, if there's one in here today that's never placed their trust and faith in you, never received salvation, that they would do so today so they would understand what it means to live in your freedom. Not a license to sin, but a life to live where they don't have to. Where they can be freed from that guilt and live in the power of your spirit and grace. Father, maybe there's someone today who has felt burdened and they've put a yoke of slavery on top of themselves and they don't even realize it. That you would lift that from them today. They would walk in your holiness and in your freedom and in your grace today, Lord. Maybe there's someone, Lord, that's on our heart that we need to pray for. Maybe we just need to come down to these steps and, and pray for someone today that we know is far from you and needs you. That their eyes may be opened to the grace and freedom you offer in Jesus Christ. That we would do that today, Father. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the band plays today, you stand today and make your decisions today.